So I think it's important for me to just tell everybody here why I stopped doing the podcast in the first place. And it's just because my reasons for starting it changed. I started the podcast because I wanted to connect with leaders like Lencioni, Godin, Gittimer. I wanted to understand certain facets of leadership, sales, marketing, product development. But then my interest changed. My interest went to more resilience. And so I had to go ahead and start building new relationships with psychologists, professors, PhDs, authors in their space so that I could understand it better. I just didn't feel like doing business books anymore. And I found more enjoyment at talking to professors and uh, psychologists because I believe that resilience is a really important piece to success in business, whether it be sales, marketing, product development. And not only is it important in business, but it's important in everyday life. I needed to take a pause, build some new relationships. I got on a phone with uh, an incredible woman, Carol Tavris. She wrote the book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And it's a really great book, and I really want to feature it today because it talks all about the idea of self-justification, why we self-justify, the dangers of self-justification, and it's a really important book for all of us to be reading, to get the golden nuggets from, because we all do this. Yours truly included, you as well, we all do this. So, if we all do this, we better understand the implications of it the positives, the negatives, and all facets of self-justification. So let's crack into this one. Golden nugget number one, we're all liars. Every single one of us, I'm a liar, you're a liar, everybody listening to this is a liar. Seth Godin back in the day wrote a book, All Marketers Are Liars, then he changed it to storytellers. We still do the same thing. We're still storytellers. We still lie to ourselves. But the question is, why do we do what we do? Why do we lie to ourselves? This is a question I had to ask Carol and she provides us with some more insight as to why we lie to ourselves. Let's get into this one. The really interesting thing about cognitive dissonance is that it allows us to resolve conflicts of beliefs or conflicts between what we believe and what our actual behavior is in one of two ways. I mean, the, the reason cognitive dissonance reduction is universal and so powerful is that it operates like a homeostatic mechanism. Dissonance is really painful and uncomfortable, and we are motivated to reduce it as we would be to reduce hunger or thirst. And we typically do that with a self-justification. I am a kind, competent, wonderful, generous, and intelligent human being. And now you're telling me that this belief that I've held for 27 years is wrong. You're telling me that I did something really hurtful to my sister-in-law. She deserved it. <laughs> She started this. You're telling me that I completely screwed up that assignment? Well, no, it was actually Fred in accounting who screwed up that assignment. Now, all of those self-justifications are what we do to lie to ourselves. It's fair. If, we, you know, if you make a mistake and you know you've made a mistake or you've cheated or you've done something unethical and you know that, you might lie to avoid getting fired or <laughs> getting divorced. Right. But you know that you're lying. Mm -hmm. What self-justification does in the service of reducing dissonance is that it prevents us from admitting, acknowledging that we did anything wrong, foolish, stupid, or incompetent. That's why the minute we buy a car or make a big decision, our minds will be really open before we make that decision, but the second we make the decision, we're going to start focusing on all the reasons that decision was right, 
and ignore, diminish, forget any evidence that the decision was wrong. So that's how the basic mechanism works. All right, all right, all right. Just when you thought lying was bad, just when you thought lying was a bad thing, I'm gonna tell you why lying is a good thing. Why do we need to lie to ourselves? Because Carol just told us all the downsides to it, all the downsides to justification. But we need to lie to ourselves, to protect ourselves. Because sometimes we, we, we experience so much pain that if we don't find a way to justify something that we did, we're gonna sit in that pain for a long time. It's gonna make us very, very uncomfortable. So I had to ask Carol a little bit more about some of the benefits of justifying ourselves, especially when we're facing a lot of pain and we're really embarrassed or we're feeling a lot of shame after something we just did. There's a reason for that. Let's get into that one. When people say, you know, cognitive dissonance causes so much trouble, why is, does it seem to be universal? Why does everybody do it? And the answer, of course, is it lets us sleep at night. <laughs> it lets us not worry that, you know, we really made a major blunder. So it has an emotional benefit. All right, so in golden nugget number one, I'm telling you that self-justification, lying to yourself, is a bad thing. Golden nugget number two, I'm saying that we need to do it to protect ourselves. So now I'm coming at you with golden nugget number three, telling you that sometimes you shouldn't justify yourself and you need to feel that pain. But Ryan, I don't wanna feel that pain. I don't wanna feel that pain. Why do I have to feel that pain? You have to feel that pain because that pain's gonna help you grow. In society, we run away from the negative emotions. We run away from that pain. When in reality, it's that pain that's gonna force us to grow. It's gonna force us to think. And while we don't necessarily wanna hear that, especially when we're facing pain like anxiety, shame, grief, we have to go through that pain. It's a very important piece here that I had to ask Carol about to help us understand more as to why do we have to, excuse my language, sit in the because we have to do that sometimes. And sometimes when we sit there, we learn our greatest lessons. So for example, one of the things that Elliot is particularly uh, interested in is what he calls you know, the self-compassion movement in this country. He said, typically of Americans, we want it fast, give me this uh, method right now, I wanna forgive myself, I don't wanna suffer for another millisecond, okay, what do I have to do? Self-forgiveness, fine, give me the six steps, you know, and, right. and let me be done and out. He said, you know, it's like, it's like when, um, you know, our intelligence services discovered that the United States Army was committing torture according to the Geneva Conventions, and many people on the right were outraged by this, you know, okay, that was then, we had to do that then, it doesn't matter, forget it, it's done, that's a thing in our past, we don't care about it, it's done and over. Well, it's not done and over if we don't face it, acknowledge it, learn from it, and change it. So, for instance, uh, in our book, we tell the story of a um, Iraqi veteran suffering from the torture he committed on Iraqi prisoners when he was there. Now we have a name for this, it's called PTSD. And it is the suffering that many soldiers feel, not when they kill a combatant enemy, but when they kill a civilian or when they are asked to do something that is outside their moral code. 
their own moral and ethical code. That's what causes the dissonance, the pain, the anguish, the sleepless nights, the heartache. I did something that's actually unforgivable by me, to me. And he wrote a gorgeous essay about this, about how he lost his uh, ability to feel proud of himself as a man and a father for his son, uh, how, how hard it was to live with an act he considered so grossly unethical. Now what he has done, so here, this is his moral choice. What many people do is bury the morality, bury the complexity of the decision of what they did. They don't want to face it in the eye. So they, it's easy to justify. I was ordered to do this. There was nothing else I could do. It was wartime. That's how it is. Or what he did, which was harder, but ultimately, ultimately more satisfying. He was able to say, I did this thing. This was a reprehensible thing. Now, I can't undo that thing, but I can do my damnedest to educate my fellow citizens, to protest this, to let people know what it was that we were doing that will create dissonance in, in them. They don't want to hear this news. But we have to face what we did, understand how it happened, and do our best to make sure that other people won't commit the same mistake. That's self-forgiveness with legs, with action, with doing something. So it's not quite enough, you know, to sit in your corner and say, I'm really cute, you know, I'm just a really <laughs> cute person and I don't deserve to feel this bad. I'm gonna forgive myself immediately. Okay. Uh, as Elliot would say, you know what? You have to live with the dissonant cognitions for a while. Live with them and think carefully about how best to reduce them. All right, golden nugget number three was all about learning from the pain. When we feel the pain, let's take some lessons from it. But golden nugget number four is interesting to me because we all make mistakes, and some of us have a really hard time admitting to mistakes. Why is that? Why is that certain people, when they make mistakes, they will justify, they will fight to the death. You're like, why are you trying to die on that hill. That's not a hill you want to die on. Back up and just admit you were wrong. What's the harm in just, ah, mea culpa, I made a mistake, my bad. Why is that so hard for some of us? When I ask Carol that, to dig deeper into that, the psychology of admitting you're wrong, she said it's because it comes down to your beliefs, and our beliefs are things that we hold very dearly to ourselves. And when she tried to make sense of it, she used a metaphor, the metaphor of a pyramid which takes us into golden nugget number four. That, that question is the heart and soul of this because you know what, very often when we look at the behavior of another person, we say, why are they behaving in that crazy self-defeating way? And we're not realizing that we're looking at an end process of a decision making that starts, could start off far more innocuously or even impulsively. We have in our book a metaphor that many people have found very useful. We call it the metaphor of the pyramid. And it works this way. You and your best friend are at the top of a pyramid. At the very top, you're standing side by side, and now you have to make a decision, a quick decision, an impulsive decision. Do you believe that vaccines cause autism or not? Do you, are you going to cheat on this exam or not? 
or your taxes or whatever else it might be. Are you going to start using drugs or not? You know, whatever the decision might be. Okay, one of you jumps one way. Uh, I'm going to cheat on this test. I got to cheat on this test because if I fail this test, I'm going to flunk out of school and I'll never have a job and my cat will leave me and no one will ever like me in the way that <laughs> students are. And the other one says, no, I'm not going to cheat because my integrity is more important to me. Now, this might be just an impulsive momentary decision, but the second they make that decision, they will be in a state of dissonance between their beliefs in cheating and their behavior. And now they must do, they must put those in consonance. So the one who cheated will now decide cheating is not such a bad thing. Oh, please, everybody cheats. It's innocuous. Nobody suffers. And I really need this grade. The one who didn't cheat will likewise put the belief in the behavior in harmony by saying, no, cheating isn't a victimless crime. We all suffer from it. It's not an honorable or honest thing to do. And I won't do it even if I lose my grade. By the time the two of them have finished justifying their actions, cheating or not cheating, they've begun a process of falling down the pyramid till they are at the base of the pyramid, far apart from each other in their attitudes about cheating, very far apart. And although the person who cheated may say, oh, hey, it's just this one time and it's just this exam, you can see that the mental effort it takes to keep justifying that action ensures that they will do it again and again and again. Because otherwise, you have to make the effort to go back up to the top and say that first decision I made was wrong. So we see this, for example, in the tragic, tragic story of the anti-vaccination campaign against, uh, you know, and the belief that it causes autism. You would think that a mother or father worried that they're vaccinating their three-year-old child caused the child's autism, you would think they would say, with international study after international study showing that vaccines are safe and save millions, not 10, not 100, millions of lives, that they would say, oh, thank you. God, for this important information, it wasn't my fault. I didn't give my child autism. Thank God for that. No, because by the time they have spent months and years justifying their opposition to vaccines, it has become too hard for them to say, I was wrong. And we see this in a thousand ways in our society. Some of them are... Um, are literally crazy when the Heaven's Gate cult, mm -hmm. which believed that they would be rescued by a spaceship traveling in the uh, tail of a, of a comet, and they bought a telescope to see the spaceship for themselves, and when they didn't see the spaceship, what did they conclude? Are we wrong in our belief that we're going to be rescued? No. The telescope was flawed. <laughs> That is the power of a belief that comes to be so central to us. That's why it is so hard to change our minds. And of course, it means, um, it's one of the reasons that science, the scientific method is so annoying to so many people. Science requires you to take your belief, whatever it might be, and put it up to the test and to risk being wrong. We do not like that. 
-hmm. Scientists don't mind being wrong. That's part of the inquiry. You know, you learn a lot from being wrong. I must say that my long-time collaboration with Elliot has taught me this. I have seven bolts of cognitive dissonance every day. You know, at least, you know, I have to call him up and say, Elliot, what do I do? He says, oh, calm down. Um, but yes, it, it, the interesting thing is that the getting into the habit of knowing, of feeling what dissonance feels like, then you recognize that insidious little bastard and you see it's there. So the first thing to know is, Every time you make a decision, a big one or a little one or a trivial one or an important one, every time you make a decision, what do I think about vaccines? What do I think about masks? What do I think about whatever it is? You are starting down that pyramid. You are putting yourself in a state of dissonance and you will now start only looking for the evidence that your decision was the right one. And you will ignore evidence that it was the wrong one. The goal therefore is to train ourselves to avoid that habit and to keep our minds open enough to be able to change them if better evidence comes along. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the uh, scientists, Fauci and so forth, were saying, well, masks aren't going to do very much. And, you know, and of course they were doing that because there weren't enough of them and the healthcare workers needed them so desperately. Um, but it made people think, oh, well, they're not. And then look, we have the scientists changing their minds again. That's how science works. Science, by its nature, keeps testing and changing and giving us better advice, never absolute advice, but better advice. And that should be the model for all of us, to hold our convictions lightly enough so that if we need to change them, we can. Now that's hard. Very We learn a lot from being wrong. It took me a lot of years to figure that out myself to say it's much easier on the heart, on the ego, on the mind to just know that I don't know something because I realize there's so much nuance. There are so many different perspectives. There's so many gray areas. And when we're so confident about something and we say, yes, this is the way it is and there are no other possibilities, you go way down that pyramid. And it's harder for you to get back up that pyramid. And so it's such a balancing act of having confidence in oneself, but always being open-minded. And that's where I love Carol's reference to scientists, because scientists are okay being wrong. In fact, they like being wrong because they know that when they're wrong, they learn. And I just wish that all of us as a society, as a collective, can do the exact same thing, because we learn a hell of a lot when we're willing to admit that we're wrong. But now let's move on to gold nugget number five, which is all about helping people understand if they're wrong or not. I know you got a friend out there. I can almost guarantee you, you have a friend, a family member, a colleague, a spouse, whatever, who is very likely wrong in their perspective. And all you're trying to do is try to get them to open their minds just a little bit to consider a different perspective. But yet they continue to justify, they justify, and you can't get them out of that cycle. So I had to ask Carol this question, which is, hey, how do I help my friends, my family members, my colleagues understand that they're self-justifying? Help me understand this. And so she had some pretty good advice for me and some real quick advice as well. Oh dear. No, you know what? That has been the biggest question that Elliot and I ever get. You know, my family is at war over politics. What do I do with Uncle Harold? 
<laughs> what do I do with, you know, cousin Lily? Um, I just think they're a jerk and a horrible person and I hate them. But on the other hand, it's holiday and family and it, it's, it's the hardest question, particularly now, you know, people used to live in harmony with members of the other political party and it wasn't a big deal. And now we know the political identity is sort of, for many people, the central organizing identity. So the answer to your question is you can't. I mean, you can't and you can in this sense. If someone has a lifelong devoted belief in something, fill in the blank, uh, a theory of child rearing or um, a political position or whatever it is, you coming along and saying, Fred, let me explain to you why your lifelong theory of child rearing and nutrition is wrong. This is so interesting. Let me explain to you. <laughs> okay. That's not what they're going to hear. What they're going to hear is, you think I'm a stupid, incompetent idiot for believing these things. That's what they're going to hear. And so the first step when we argue with anyone is to get that tone out of our voices, which is, what were you thinking? <laughs> That's the underlying hum. What were you thinking that you believed? Okay. Because the answer is going to be, what I was thinking, you nitwit, is that I am smart, competent, and informed, and you don't know anything. That's, so this conversation is going nowhere. Okay. What you have to do, I mean, what we need to learn to do is, first of all, pick the quarrels, pick the fights. Um, you know, if someone is so far along the path that they're looking for uh, rescuing spaceships, you're not going to change their mind. They need to believe that too deeply. But if you have points of contact with them and you have points of agreement with them, then you begin from that. And you begin from your own, you always begin from your own vulnerability, insecurity, and so forth. Um, you know, I've learned this really interesting thing about, you know, whatever it might be. Are you interested in discussing this with me? Uh, can we have a conversation about the benefits and disadvantages of uh, turnips, whatever, you know, that it might be? I'm, I'm learning this interesting thing. Do you want to know about it? You invite their interest. Um, I have a friend who had a very interesting conversation. She's a liberal Democrat and he's a conservative Republican, a neighbor. And so they get into this conversation about the Affordable Care Act, which of course is a, you know, many millions of people, pre-existing conditions, that whole thing. And her neighbor said to her, the part I hate is the individual mandate that people who are healthy have to pay into this system. He was really angry about that. And she said, well, uh, do, do you know how insurance works? She said, it only works if the people who don't have a claim are paying into the system. Not everybody has a fire that burns their house down, you know? And so, but everybody gets fire insurance, especially here in California. She said, I could say, hey, I've never had a fire. I'm not paying for this insurance. She said, and by the way, I have never had an auto accident. 
She said, but I am paying for your dweeby teenage son's four accidents in three years because I haven't had any. Okay, I mean, she really made him laugh. But she said, it's because I, who've had no accidents, am contributing to the insurance pool that pays for your son when he bonks his car one more time. Okay, And he hadn't seen it that way. Now, that's the kind of conversation. But you see, it has to come from a spirit of neighborliness and friendliness and being open to hearing the other person's point of view in a non-accusing way that doesn't make the other person feel stupid for believing as they do. That's the hard part. That monkey brain's showing up again. I told you, this thing is dangerous. In previous episodes of this show, I've told you about the monkey brain and how dangerous it is and how it shows up and we need to get better at recognizing it and short-circuiting it, bringing it under control. You'll never truly bring it under control, but if I can raise your self-awareness just a little bit more to recognize it when it's there, you'll be better off because of it. In our last golden nugget here, I had to ask Carol a little bit about how the brain makes sense of the world around us. Our brain forms biases. Our brain forms stereotypes and sometimes even prejudices because we're just trying to make sense of everything around us. And so we're trying to make a decision here and a decision here. What does this mean? What does that mean? And it's important for us to understand the difference between all three and to be aware of our own biases, our own stereotypes, and perhaps our own prejudices. And in order for us to do that, we have to understand the difference between all three and what they all mean. So let's break into this final golden nugget where Carol really drops some great knowledge on us here. Let's get into this one. I thought you would never ask. I'm working on the answer to that question and expect a Nobel Peace Prize within a year or two. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Why not ask a really hard question? <laughs> okay. Uh, right. I think, let's say, let's say there's two parts to this. First of all, um, our minds, this is just a feature of how our minds work. Our minds are full of cognitive biases. That's the default brain package that we come with, and that's how it is. Um, I like Lee Ross's uh, favorite bias, the bias that we are unbiased. I see things clearly as they really are, and you, if you don't agree with me, you're biased. That's a normal way that we go about our business. Second, there's the confirmation bias. I'm going to look for information that confirms what I believe and ignore any discrepant information. And by the way, that applies in um, uh, to prejudices as well. You know, I am prejudiced against that group of people. Oh, here's this one really nice person from that group who's my next door neighbor. Well, that's an exception that proves the rule, whatever the hell that means, which is nothing. Okay. <laughs> so biases, biases are a part of our human mental mechanisms. And along with that is one tool in our mental toolbox is the inevitable creation of categories. We walk around the world categorizing. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not a prejudice. That is a normal, uh, efficient way of organizing the world by gender, by city, by drivers of Priuses versus drivers of Mercedes. Mm -hmm. We, we, We stereotype very readily. And stereotypes exaggerate differences between groups. All those Texans are this way. (laughs) All those people from Vermont are that way. And we don't notice the differences among Texans and the differences among people in Vermont. 
so stereotypes and biases, I want to, I want to emphasize this. Mm -hmm. They're a normal part of how we do business and they're efficient. If you had to process information about every new thing that came your way every day, you, you wouldn't get past lunchtime. So we use those stereotypes to guide our way through life. A prejudice is a different kettle of fish, so to speak. A prejudice is a stereotype about a group that has the added element of heat, of negativity, and of hostility. Um, I might notice differences between French people and American people, but I'm not prejudiced against French people. They come from, it's a, it's a different culture, it's a different way of dealing in the world, and I'm charmed by it and exasperated by it, but I don't, I'm not prejudiced against the French. I don't want to put up a barrier to the French coming to the United States. Prejudices, the really interesting thing about prejudices is their social purpose. Prejudices allow us to feel closer to our group identity. They bind us to our group and they justify any bad thing we do toward the group we're prejudiced against. This is why all despots and tyrants and demagogues come up with a scapegoat, an enemy, that is the reason for all of our problems. If we can get rid of those people, everything will be fine. Of course, the, those people have changed over the centuries. Jews or black people or Serbians or Muslims or fill in the blank. A tyrant comes to power, finds a communist, that's a popular enemy. We find the enemy, they're the source of our problems, and we mindlessly get rid of them, um, which consolidates the despot's power and makes the majority group feel cohesive and right and morally right. So a prejudice, one of the things that concerns me about the notion today that a prejudice is somehow deeply built into us and we can't do anything. The interesting thing about prejudices is that they come and go depending on the economy and demographics and a whole lot of other things going on around us. You don't find very much anti-Iranian prejudice in the United States, but there used to be Iranians go home signs years ago. You don't find Japs go home as we had yes. in World War II. Um, so the target of prejudice in America, of course, there have been standard targets. African-Americans, of course, and Native Americans and Jews always. Um, but the interesting thing about prejudice is just that, is that when any groups, any two groups are in competition, real or imagined, for economic resources, status, and opportunity. Put them in conflict and prejudice will explode. So in that observation is both the cause of prejudice and its cure in a way. The programs that have reduced prejudice are those that put two formerly warring groups together as Mandela did, for instance, in South Africa. Um, give them a common goal, a common goal, and um, if they don't think the other person's trying to take bread out of their mouths and money out of their pocket, they can find a shared affinity. 
and by the way, the other big thing that that reduces prejudice is um, contact, is exposure to the group you think you hate. Um, it is no coincidence that uh, that um, the more that people are exposed to people of other cultures, ethnicities, religions, and so forth, uh, as a routine way of living, the less their prejudice. All right, there we have it. That is Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me by Carol Tavares. And I really love this book because it's a book that will help you increase your self-awareness. Understanding why you do what you do, why you make certain decisions, why you fight so hard to back up something that maybe you don't necessarily believe in. It's really important for us to read this book, understand it, and see where we also justify in our lives. I'll tell you right now, after reading this, after my conversation with Carol, I'm more aware of the self-justification that I make in my life and how to approach it with others as well. And that's my hope for this book is that you listen to this interview and maybe you go out there, you pick up the book, you read a little bit more about it and you learn a little bit more about how self-justification, cognitive dissonance, biases work with you and your world. Again, I'm just so happy to be back here sharing these golden nuggets with you every single week. I'll be back here every single day sharing some new content with you because to me, I have a renewed focus. I'm excited to be back and it's an honor for me to actually just be here and for you to give me your time. And um, I'm very grateful for that.